trying to think if we have some announcements this morning. Sorry about that, Terry. A couple of announcements. Um, the first one I want to take you to is that next Saturday, we will be meeting at Tammy and Alyssa's house for the youth, Saturday night at 6, wait, what, 7.30. Thank you, Rachel. 7.30, and then I think we're going to watch a movie at 8, so um, we will be having that, right? Is that all right. Sorry. I thought I had the time on there because I knew I would forget, and then I didn't put it on there. So now I'm looking at everybody going, am I saying it wrong? All right. So we'll have a movie night next Saturday. But that being said, that doesn't mean we won't meet this Sunday. So tonight, from 5 to 7, uh, youth will be meeting. I'm sure there will be some sort of frisbee slash almost falling on the gravel parking lot, uh, which has been pretty amazing because I see some of these kids trip over their own feet and then they don't fall in the parking lot. So that's a good game of Frisbee. Um, but then also at the same time, they will have Bible study tonight. So come and join them for that. And then um, one thing I don't have on here is October 17th, we will be having Daniel Messiah again. And if you remember, he's been here a couple of times and he has shared his testimony. Um, he's a, a man w that was converted from um, Islam and he is now a Christian, and he has a ministry called Open the Gates, and we support them as a church. They share the gospel uh, through something called the Rock TV that is broadcast over a satellite to Muslim nations, and so it's pretty cool. Uh, there's actually a lot of Bible teachers from the United States that they send their recordings of their services, their teaching, and then uh, the Muslim world is able to be exposed to the simple teaching of the scriptures, and so... Uh, that being said, he will be here on Saturday night, October 17th. So, Genesis chapter 4. If you'll remember with me, we began our study just a few weeks ago in the book of Genesis. And Drew opened up in Genesis chapter 1 and explained the creation account. Um, he, he, he just read it simply, and I think that... Many times, because we're more educated, we kind of try to explain away what Scripture simply just speaks. And so um, the simplicity of Genesis is that it's the account of God creating the heavens and the earth and the fullness thereof and then placing us in those confines. And as he placed us here, he left us to master, to manage, and to multiply in his creation. So in Genesis chapter 2, we saw a more specific account about how creation took place and the events in there. And then in Genesis chapter 3, we have what I would say the, the saddest chapter in the Bible, which is where God, having given us his command to not partake of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, uh, man was tempted to sin. And we know from James chapter 1 that when opportunity meets desire, when it's full grown, when it's partaken of in that opportunity, uh, that sin conceives and it brings forth death. And so what does death look like? Well, death looks like what we see when we lose a loved one, but it also begins before the physical death. He was talking about spiritual death. So in chapter 3, we saw what the result is of man rejecting or at the very least ignoring and being deceived by Satan and deciding that, well, you know what, this... This fruit on this tree uh, looks good. It looks like it would be good for me. 
and that it's able to make me wise to know the difference between good and evil, to, and then it will make me like God, who doesn't want to be like God. And so what's interesting is that Satan, the serpent, tempted Eve and said, God knows that on the day that you eat of it, you'll become like him. What's interesting is that he wasn't lying at that point. On the day that they ate of it, they became more like God in that they understood the difference between good and evil. But the problem is, is that the result of that sin that made them become like God made them no longer be with God. They became like God, and ironically, they were no longer allowed to be with God because they pursued the knowledge of good and evil. Knowledge is a good thing, right? We've got a lot of teachers in here. We're here to learn about the Bible. We're learn here to learn about Jesus through the Bible. And yet knowledge obtained in means other than going through God will always lead to more problems than it does blessings. And so in chapter 4, we see the result of the fall passed on to the generations of Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve were told to master, manage, and then multiply. And as they multiply, what we see is that the sin doesn't go away. It actually perpetuates through further generations and causes problems in those specific generations. And then it goes past those generations. It's like cancer. Sin is cancer that I believe is actually more dangerous than physical cancer because it leads to destruction eternally, not just temporarily. And so in Genesis chapter four this morning, we begin and it says, now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. Then she bore again, this time his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and their fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. So here we have man making a offering. And if you remember that at the end of chapter 3, after sin took place, that actually God made the first animal sacrifice. God set a pattern for Adam and Eve. When there was sin, when there was shame created, then an innocent animal had to die in order to provide covering for the one who sinned. Adam and Eve knew that they were naked. God provided a covering. Adam and Eve knew that they were naked. God provided the covering. And yet what we find out here is that worship is built into the heart of mankind and continues. So here we have Cain and Abel. And most of us have heard of Cain and Abel in some form or fashion before. Cain and Abel are built into our society so much that I was watching a clip from Remember the Titans. And in there, the little girl that is very into sports, way more than I know about sports, this little girl knows. And yet in there, she goes, it's jealousy, daddy as old as Cain and Abel. Uh, it doesn't go on from there. She just mentions it. It's a reference. But Cain, the name of Cain actually means I have begotten. I've acquired. 
And in there, I wonder if when Eve named Cain, she was hearkening back to the curse in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. Speaking to Satan, I'll put war between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. Her seed shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And so um, here we have God and Eve working together in her mind and she's begotten or she's acquired a son. Perhaps the son that will be the promised seed that will defeat the serpent. But nonetheless, this young man is a crop farmer. He is a tiller of the ground. And his offering to the Lord is the fruit of the ground. This is what he produced with his hands. God did not respect Cain or his offering. Abel, the second son, his name means breath or nothing. The idea that we get from the, uh, the book of Ecclesiastes, where King Solomon says it's all vanity, vanity, vanity. And the idea is the idea of a soap bubble or a vapor. It's there, and then without much effort, it pops, it's gone. And so the idea is that Abel, whether she knew this or not, she named him Abel, which means vapor or nothing, and his life will be that, a breath, a vapor, a very short. He is a shepherd, a keeper of sheep, and his offering is the firstborn of his flock and the fat, so the best of the best. And so God, it says here, respected Abel and his offering. So my question for you, before we go any further, is why didn't God respect Cain and his offering? See, it doesn't say that he didn't respect his offering. It says that he didn't respect Cain. And he, he didn't respect his offering. But Abel's offering was respected by God. It was received. It was accepted but it also says that he accepted and respected Abel and his offering. See, oftentimes as believers, we want to offer things to God, and yet our offering is not detached from who we are. God cares about the giver as much as what the giver gives. He actually cares more about the worshiper than the worship that we provide. So in, to, in the Psalms, he writes, you know, uh, give to the Lord a joyful noise. That's our praise. That's our offering. We, I don't see any of you dragging in bloody goats this morning. Praise the Lord for that. I don't think the carpet could take it. I don't know that my stomach could take it. I didn't see any of you bring in a big uh, sack of wheat to burn on an altar. Although I, I don't know that it wouldn't smell good. It might smell awesome. Uh, I, I actually would like the smell of burning and charred meat. It smells amazing. As a matter of fact, when my neighbors start cooking meat, uh, I want to go see them and meet them. Maybe some of them for the first time, because who doesn't like the smell of fat? Burning on a grill, just enough, not too much. But the idea is they're offering something, but God's not interested in what they're offering or what their worship looks like or what they're wearing He's interested in their hearts. It says that he did not accept Cain or his offering. It says that he accepted Abel and his offering. 
So why? Now, some have spent hours and years and minutes like studying and reading books about, well, obviously, God prefers an animal sacrifice. That's what we saw in Genesis chapter 3. And obviously, you can't, God's not a vegan. He doesn't want vegetables. You know, that, he doesn't want that stuff. But the problem is, is if you go to Leviticus and study the law, he actually makes opportunity for us to offer the first fruits of everything, whether it's our grain, whether it's our money, whether it's our time or our talents or meat. It, all of those, and if you read Leviticus, and I would highly encourage you to, it's going to be really creepy sounding. But every one of the offerings points to Jesus. For instance, when they offer of the grain, remember the New Testament says, I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. And you know that about wheat. You plant one seed and you get a whole bunch that comes up from it dying and going into the ground and raising with new life, right? The potential that's there. Well, that's Jesus. He's not only the bread of life, but he's also that kernel of wheat. He is the seed that went into the ground, gave up its life to make many seeds, and we are those seeds. So it's a type of Jesus Christ, what Cain offered. And yet at the same time, Abel offered a lamb. And, and remember, the New Testament opens with John the Baptist saying, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so both of these offerings are types of Christ. So I would submit to you, it has nothing to do with the offering itself. It has to do with the offerer. That's a word, right? Offerer. In 1 Samuel, uh, King Saul has been chosen as the first king. And as he's chosen as the first king, he's found to be with fault. And the Lord takes his spirit from him and he says, you shall no longer be the, the king over my kingdom, but I'm going to provide a new king. And so he sends Samuel out to the house of Jesse. And as he gets there, Jesse has many sons. And so Samuel, being a prophet, goes out there at the direction of the Lord. He's standing before this lineup, except it's not a lineup of who to throw into prison. It's a lineup of who to select for the next king. And so he starts to do what? He looks at them. And he looks at their appearance. Now think about this. Any nation wants a king that represents them. They, they want somebody that's going to show up in a meeting and look the part. And King Saul was a, a head taller than every other person. He was kind of a domineering figure. And so as, as Samuel's looking for a king, he's looking for someone that looks kingly like you and I would do the same thing. And as he looks at this king and this group of men that might be the next king, what God says to him is, do not look at his appearance. 1 Samuel 16, 7. Do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, right? But the Lord looks at the heart. God cares about the heart. And later in life, King David, who was chosen on that day, would be called a man after God's own heart. And so in Genesis 4, it gives us a clue to why God didn't respect Cain's offering. Look at verse 7. He says, If you do well, will you not be accepted? 
And if you do not do well, then sin lies at the door and its desire is for you, but you shall rule over it. Sin's desire is to rule over Cain. Sin's desire is to rule over you and I instead of God. And yet what we find here is that sin was at the door of Cain. Sin in our hearts make what we offer to God abominable in his sight. A prideful, proud heart versus a humble, repentant heart is what tainted the offering. It had nothing to do with what was offered. It had to do with who was giving it and the intents of the heart. And so in Hebrews chapter 11, it speaks about, imagine this, Cain. Oh, sorry. It speaks about Abel. It says there in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4, by faith, Cain, excuse me, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and through it, he being dead still speaks. So the offering that Abel offered was an offering all about chapter 11 in Hebrews by faith. By faith, we are made righteous, not by works. And so here we have Abel making his offering in faith. And what's interesting is if you turn to the right and you get to Revelation, turn back one page in Jude chapter 1, verse 10. And Jude, speaking of the apostates, those who have walked away from the faith in Jesus, those who reject Jesus, he says there, he describes these apostates, those who have walked away from God. He says, likewise, also, these dreamers defile the flesh. They practice things that are sinful. They reject authority and they speak evil of dignitaries or those who have been placed over them. And then go down to verse 10. These who are like this speak evil of whatever they do not know. Whatever they know, they know naturally like brute beasts in these things, they corrupt themselves. He says, woe to them for they have gone in the way of Cain. What's the way of Cain he just described here? They act like brute beasts. They respond to things according to their natural lusts and desires. They're animals. They're humans that act like animals. Whatever their body wants, they do it. Whatever feels good, whatever tastes good, whatever, they just say it. There's no restraint. They go in the way of Cain, which is interesting. If you turn to the, pay, uh, to the left, just a few pages from the book of Jude to 1 John chapter 3. <clears throat> in verse 10, John writes here, and he makes a distinction between those who are children of God and those who are not. He says, in this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest or revealed. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God nor is he who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of the wicked one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Why did Cain murder Abel? Because knowing Abel and seeing the way he lived reminded Cain that he was wicked. Righteous people in your life will always be convicting to you. It says there, because 
Abel's, excuse me, because Cain's works were evil and his brother's works were righteous. Why did Cain hate Abel? Because Abel was righteous and he couldn't stand it. Imagine, if you will, being Abel's brother and Abel was this righteous man. Let's fast forward to the New Testament. Imagine being the brother of Jesus. Like you're wanting to go do mischief because that's what you do. And Jesus won't get involved. And because he won't get involved, you know he's going to tell on you. It's convicting. And so rather than dealing with conviction and responding and going, well, I'm not going to do that, you kill the one or off the one in my Italian-born language, you off them so you don't have to be reminded that you're sinful. Instead of praising those people who are godly in your life, the temptation becomes to tear them down so you can be as tall as they are to mock them or to point out, yeah, but they're not perfect. Okay, what does that have to do with anything? We don't need to compare ourselves with ourselves because Corinthians says that when we compare ourselves with ourselves, we actually fool ourselves into thinking that that other person is the standard. And yet in Luke chapter 6, and then we'll move on, Luke chapter 6, Jesus speaks in parables. In verse 43, he says this. A good tree does not bear bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. For every tree is known by its own fruit. Men do not gather figs from thorns, nor do they gather grapes from a bramble bush. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good. And an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. And so back here in Genesis, we see this happening. We see Cain, his offering is not accepted because there's wickedness in his heart and God wants him to deal with it. And I know this because as you see this opportunity he gives him, what we're going to find out is that uh, Cain is a worshipful religious man. So God pursues sinners, by the way. Do you know that? God pursues sinful people because he loves sinful people. He doesn't love what they do, but he loves them. But have you ever noticed that when you do something wrong, the last thing you want is for someone to confront you? I don't like being confronted. Frankly, I don't like confronting people, believe it or not. As a pastor, when someone's doing something obviously wrong, the last thing I want to do is text them or call them or show up at their house and go, what are you doing? That's the last thing I've ever wanted to do. And so here's what God does because he loves us. He says to Cain, why are you angry? Now, does he know why he's angry? Yes. But he's trying to get Cain to think through, why is this making you angry that I won't respect your offering? Why has your countenance fallen? If you do righteously, if you live righteously, won't you be accepted? The answer to that is yes. And so God already knows <clears throat> the whys. <clears throat> but God in his kindness, Romans chapter 2, verse 4 says, 
the kindness of God leads men to repentance. Does that mean that God never approaches them? Does that mean that it's, it's kind to just let people live? No, God in his kindness approaches us and says, what are you doing? Why are you acting like that? What's going on in your heart? God in his kindness will lead you to repentance, but you must be a willing participant in that. Cain's given an opportunity. Consider, why am I angry? Have you ever been angry? I know none of you in here have ever been angry. But God's always asking, why are you angry? And in Ephesians chapter 4, God actually tells us through the pen of Paul that being angry is actually not sin. Think about this. God's confronting Cain, and we, if you know the story, spoiler alert, Cain kills Abel, but he hasn't killed him yet. And so God gets involved to help him, to shepherd him away from this sin that he knows he's getting ready to commit. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17, if I can find it, there it is. Paul writes, This I say, therefore, and I testify in the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the ungodly walk in the futility of their minds, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them, because of the blindness of their hearts, who, being past feeling, have given themselves over to lewdness, to all uncleanness, with greediness. But you have not so learned Christ, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning your former conduct, the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, that you put on the new man which, created, which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore... Put away lying. Let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Then he says, be angry. Did you know that God's commanded you through the pen of Paul to be angry? You can be angry. Anger is there to give you energy, that adrenaline shot, to deal with problems or things that endanger you. Be angry. But then he goes on, to say, and do not sin. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. When you're angry and you sin, you're giving control of your life over to your anger, which gives control over to the devil. Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands. I went on too far. My point is, who or what am I letting control me? Are you letting God control you, or are you letting your anger control you? And then the question he asks them, why is your countenance fallen? Why is your countenance changed, Cain? Remember, he says that his, he gets angry, and then, of course, his facial expression changes. The glory departs from his face. He's being religious. He's offering something to God. God says, I won't accept your offering. And Cain immediately gets angry. I get it. Why wouldn't he? I worked hard. I produced this fruit. I, I planted. I sowed. I watered. I tended. 
Now I've harvested. I've given this to you, and you won't take it? Why not? So we can let our anger make us angry, or we can make, let our anger make us do something sinful, or we can say, why am I angry, and try to deal with that. And in Luke chapter 17, verse 33, I'm going to turn there real quick. Not that quick. Luke 17, verse 33, says this. Whoever seeks to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. Cain has the opportunity to give up his pride, to humble himself, and to talk to God about this, or he has the opportunity to hold on to his anger and let it rule over him. But I want to point out one other thing in Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. Remember, Cain is doing something religious. He's making an offering to the Lord. But there in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said something that I think applies to this passage. Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, You fool to his brother, shall be in danger of hellfire. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar, remember, Cain has brought a gift to the altar, right? If you bring your gift to the altar, and there, remember that your brother has something against you. Then leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. He doesn't say there, if you get to the altar and remember that someone has sinned against you. If you get to the altar and remember that you have sinned against someone else. If you're, you owe your brother a debt and you haven't dealt with that yet, then don't offer your offering yet. Put it down, go deal with it, and then come worship with a cleansed and renewed heart. Cain offered something, and I wonder if he had sinned against his brother and that's why he wasn't received. God doesn't just allow us to come and worship and act like everything's fine. He wants us to deal with our sin not to try to fix it or earn our righteousness before God, but to deal with our sin so that when we come before him and we worship, we're unhindered from a joy-filled worship versus a just living it out. I think a lot of us don't have joy when we worship, not because God's not good, not because we haven't been forgiven much, but because we got a lot of guilt and shame and unforgiven sin against others or sin against others that we've not dealt with yet. When you're forgiven of something that you've done wrong, and you really recognize the weight of that being lifted off of you, it is freeing. And it will give you such great joy that no one's going to have to tell you to sing louder. You won't be able to help it. There's freedom in it. It's unhindered. And so, <clears throat> sin and its wages... Verse 8, if we can get back to Genesis now that I've been gone for so long. 
<laughs> verse 8. Now, Cain talked with Abel, his brother. Sounds good. Starts off good, right? He wants to go and reconcile himself? No, he wants to go and avenge, avenge himself. Cain talked with Abel, his brother. And it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. And then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? God's God knows what he's done, and he continues to pursue him. Okay, you haven't sinned yet, Cain. Why are you mad? Why is your countenance fallen? What's going on? And then he goes and does the deed, the dirty deed. And it will be a costly deed, not a deed done dirt cheap. And in there, he kills his brother. And then God doesn't go, I'm done with you. Again, just like Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve fell. They sinned against God. And what was the first thing that God did? He pursued them and asked them questions, giving opportunity for them to own it. So as soon as he kills Abel, God says to him, where is Abel, your brother? And Cain, rather than dealing with it and saying, I killed him and confessing, he says, I don't know. I wasn't supposed to be watching him. Weren't you watching him? You accepted his offering. Maybe I'm going a little bit further than it, the passage actually says, but you accepted his offering. Why aren't you protecting him? He's your little brown noser, right? It, he, it went well for him. He's righteous. Why aren't things working out for him? It proves that even though if you live righteous, it doesn't mean everything is going to go well. He says, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And then God said, what have you done? The voice of your brother cries, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Maybe you won't witness against yourself and confess and repent, but the blood that spilled into the ground that I created, it cries out against you. When you till the ground, it shall no longer yield its strength to you. This is hard. That's his livelihood. He says, a fugitive and a vagabond, you shall be on the earth. Anger is not sin, but what you do with it is. Cain had a desire to rule over and kill his brother, to stop the conviction, and he took the opportunity, and it led forth. When it conceived, it brought forth what? Death. God pursues confession again. Abel's blood bears witness against Cain. Cain will not confess, I did it. That's the only thing that keeps him from being forgiven. You cannot be forgiven of sin you will not confess. You cannot be changed and healed from things that you will not agree with God of and repent of. No repentance, no life. No confession, no forgiveness. Just burdened. Since consequences practically, you're going to have to work hard. And guess what? You won't get much fruit from your labor. Verse 11 through 12, sin leaves us lost. Vagabond and a wanderer. It leaves us lost, guilty, wanderers roaming the earth with no direction, blinded. And so let's go to verse 13. Cain does make a confession, 
But his confession is not one of repentance. His confession of the, is of the situation that he has placed himself in. Verse 13, Cain says to the Lord, not I've sinned against you, but this punishment is greater than I can bear. Surely you, you have driven me out this day from the face of the ground. I shall be hidden from your face. I shall be a fugitive, a vagabond on the earth, and it will happen that anyone who finds me will kill me. People are going to seek vengeance on me. Was it God that drove him out? No, our sins, our sin separates us from God, not God. God pursues us, we sin, our sin separates us from God. It's our own doing. God continues to pursue us. And so we see here the results of his actions. And verse 15, I, I don't want to stop without reading this. The Lord said to him, therefore, whoever kills Cain... Vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord set a mark on Cain, lest anyone finding him should kill him. So Cain's confession and sin's cost. Sin's punishment is too great for us to bear, just like it was Cain. When we realize the guilt and the shame and the punishment that we're going to get for our sin, it's too much. It should cause us, like Cain, to cry out. Sin drives me out from where I belong. Cain belonged in this land to till and produce like a farmer. And yet because of his sin, he's driven out of this location. Sin separates me from God's presence. Sin makes me a fugitive on the run. Sin makes me a wanderer. There's no safe place to hide. There's no direction. There's no destination without a home. Sin puts a bounty on my head for anyone who would seek justice. It makes me a target. Sin means that there's always someone looking for you to make things right, to seek justice. But in the end of all of this, God is merciful. He shows mercy. He protects Cain. Why? Verse 15, it says that God tells him, whoever kills Cain will be punished Vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord set a mark on Cain, lest anyone finding him should kill him. There was a bounty. If you kill Cain, you'll be punished seven times worse than he would. Why does he do that? Second Peter chapter 3 in verse 9 says this about God's character. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but he is patient towards us. He is not willing that any should perish, but he's willing that all should come to repentance. And so why is he being merciful and protecting Cain? Well, my belief is that he's still giving opportunity for Cain to repent. He still wants Cain to be in fellowship with him. So from this, we have two lines. Two lines of descendants, the descendants of Cain and the descendants of Seth. And we'll draw a couple conclusions from that. Um, let's see, verse 16. Then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord. He dwelt in the land of Nod on the east of Eden. And Cain knew his wife. She conceived and bore Enoch. Now this is not the same Enoch that will come later from the line of Seth, but we'll get there. And he built a city 
and called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad begot Mahujel, and Mahujel begot Methushel, and Methushel begot Lamech. Then Lamech took for himself two wives. The name of one was Adah, and the name of the second was Zillah, and Adah born Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. So the first among farmers. Um, Let's see. Verse 21, his brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the harp and the flute. They were the artsy types. They were the musicians. And as for Zillah, she also bore Tubal Cain, an instructor of every craftsman in bronze and iron, and the sister of Tubal Cain was Naamah. I want to stop there for a second. What's interesting about this is that there's even to the point where Samuel is the prophet and King David is the king, all the way in this, this distant future for this nation that God's going to call out of Abraham, they still, at the point of David's time, have to go to different nations in order to get their swords sharpened. They actually have to go to the Philistines to do that. It becomes a hindrance to them. They don't start working metal until way later in the history of Israel. I just think that's interesting. But here in the line of Cain, we have these craftsmen that are very skilled. And then verse 23, Lamech says to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. He's getting ready to say something important. Wives of Lamech, listen to my speech. For I have killed a man for wounding me, even a young man for hurting me. If Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, then Lamech... 77 fold, which makes me think that this, these descendants of Cain, as they continue on, they become settlers and Nod, and Nod means wandering. Their lives become settled and content in wandering with no purpose. And in their wandering, verse 24 shows us they, be, they become a people known for taking their own vengeance instead of handing out forgiveness. Because if you look at Matthew chapter 18, verse 21 through 22, Peter says to Jesus, if my brother sins against me, how many times shall I avenge him? No, forgive him. Seven, thinking to be very godly. And what Jesus says famously to Peter is, no, 70 times seven. So in the way of Cain, they became a people known for taking their own vengeance instead of forgiving trespasses. But what's interesting about the line of Cain, if you look at the image on the right, if you can see it, is that Adam had Cain, who had Enoch, Irad, and all the way down to Naamah. Adam also had Abel, who perished and was killed. But what we find about the line of Cain is though they multiplied and they continued and they were a people of vengeance and they were a people of wandering, what we find is that in the days of Noah, the line of Cain completely is wiped from the face of the earth because they will not receive any sort of salvation from God. It's all about them producing for themselves. And yet through the line of Seth that we'll see in Genesis 5, Enosh, Kenan, Mahalalel, Jared, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, 
and then Noah, there will be salvation through Noah because of the ark. And so the descendants of Seth in verse 25, Adam knew his wife again. She bore a son and named him Seth. For God appointed another seed for me instead of Abel, she said, whom Cain killed. So she's replacing Abel, not Cain, the firstborn. And as for Seth, to him also a son was born, and he named him Enosh. And then men began to call on the name of the Lord. So two families, Cain, who would not respond to the Lord's plotting and pleading with him to repent, and the descendants of Seth, known for calling upon God. Seth means God has granted He's provided. He has given. Cain meant, I have gained. I have obtained. And yet Seth means God has given. Interesting. But what I want to talk about for just a moment, if you'll give me the the opportunity to do that, is that many people question who wrote the book of Genesis. How could they possibly pass on this information from generation to generation? Just in this one family, we have all these descendants. Well, I want to point out something that they lived for a very long time. And Adam, living 930 years until his death, was actually a contemporary or alive during the time of Noah's grandpa, or excuse me, Noah's dad, Lamech. Lamech was alive while Adam was still alive. So how could they possibly pass on this oral tradition? Well, Adam was able to tell Lamech who was his great, 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 great grandson. And he was able to pass it on to the next generation. So it actually wasn't that far removed, if you think about it. Just the thought. So as we close, I want to talk about wandering for just a minute. That We have two opportunities. We can become wanderers. We can become those without purpose. We can become those who are unrepented of our sin. And we've just seen in this family that that will always lead to destruction and separation from God. Or we can look to the line of Seth, which leads to life. We can become wanderers, or we can become repentant people who call upon the name of the Lord. And I want to turn with you to a familiar, perhaps, passage in Isaiah chapter 53. I want to look at Jesus. Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah writes there, Who has believed our report? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness when we see him. There's no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And we hid perhaps like Eve and Adam and Cain, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Cain despised God's pleading with him. Verse 4, surely he has borne our griefs. Remember, Cain said, my punishment is too much for me to bear. But Isaiah says, he, Jesus, has borne our griefs. He has carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him not. Smitten by God and afflicted, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace 
was upon him, and by his stripes we shall be healed. And then look at verse 6. We all, like sheep, have gone to wandering. We've gone astray. We all have turned every one to his own way, just like Cain. And the Lord has laid on Jesus the iniquity of us all. Why? Because he's not willing that we would continue wandering without forgiveness, without healing, without repentance. But he's willing that we all would come to this freedom in Christ through humbling ourselves, unlike Cain, who would not humble himself. God pleaded with him over and over. People say that the God of the Old Testament is just this wrathful bully. And yet I read these, just chapter 3 and 4 of Genesis, and I see his love that pursues unrighteous murderers, sinners, prideful, boastful wanderers. He's not willing that they perish, but that all would come to him and just say, Lord, I need you. I believe that Jesus has borne my sin on the cross, and I want to receive that forgiveness because I can't, I can't, it's too much for me to bear. Set me free, Lord. You've paid the price. So Lord Jesus, thank you for Jesus. Father, thank you for sending your son. Thank you for the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And yet, Lord, we know that you won't suffer with us forever. That there is a day where there will be no more opportunity to repent. And I pray, Lord Jesus, help us to share this good news with all those who are wandering, lost. Bring in the lost sheep. Lord, the harvest is plentiful. The laborers are few. Send us out. We will go. I pray that everyone in here that knows you today would be the willing servant that says, I will go. I will tell. I will confront. Not for condemnation, but so that people will not go to hell without somebody standing in the gap saying, you don't have to. And at the same time, Lord, I pray and ask that if there's anyone here today that has not, that's ignoring your pleading and is just too prideful or just I've got, in the thought of I've gone too far, God can't forgive me. Lord, you are willing to forgive Cain. You would have. He just had to say the word. I pray that no one here today would leave without saying the word, that no one would leave here today without going in the way of Seth and saying, Lord, I'm calling upon your name. I'm calling upon your forgiveness, your mercy. Lord, forgive me, a sinner. Make me new. Change my heart. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.